like I have a lot of conversations. I'm, I'm half Indian within like the Asian American community within, you know, really almost any cultural community has some areas of stigma. I know very few that, that don't, um, but that that prevents people from seeking services or if they're seeking it, um, not actually, you know, obtaining it. I mean, the, I love the, there's a, this design element within, um, private practice therapists um, where they have a waiting room and they have a separate hallway um, to leave so that no one has to ever see each other because you would never want somebody to have to be able to know that you're in therapy if you don't want to you know make it known so it's this interesting kind of built-in um, aspect of the system at this point but I think a lot of emphasis goes into other areas nowadays. There's all this talk about self-care. Self-care as being something where, you know, people learned how to take care of their, their own needs, how to, you know, do all the things, sleep, nutrition, exercise, you know, taking care of yourself. I have a colleague who's now the, um, the chief, uh, the medical director of the American uh, Foundation for Suicide Prevention, Christine Moutier, and she um, made the analogy to sort of a gas tank and that the gas tank has a hole in it and it's always pouring out and you have to find ways to refill your gas tank. And, and we're not, as Americans, and um, we're not very good at that and being in touch with our own needs. But I think there's there's the other aspect, which is um, which we're kind of touching on um, with COVID, which is how to really use social contact um, as a preventative means as well. Because I really deeply believe that we need each other but we're not very good at knowing how to actually support each other well. I think we're good at distracting each other. We're good at, you know, maybe doing other activities, but we're really knowing how to support one another is kind of a, a lost skill or, or maybe just never existed or has never been taught on a widespread basis. Um, and then, you know, the, the other big category and something we're, we're working on within my startup, Udify, is... Um, kind of helping connect all of the pieces because at least in the U.S., uh, I was just having a discussion with another psychiatrist in India. This everything exists in their own little silos. There are therapists, there are you know counseling, there's support groups, there's apps, and it's very hard to navigate. And so people being able to know how to to use and find what would help them and their particular needs is really a um, big problem and I think something that technology can kind of solve. So I think that, that all of those areas are are potential um, things to address in terms of um, prevention and included in the in, in there is also like understanding your own feelings, understanding, you know, having language for it, um, understanding what a healthy relationship is. We never talk about that. How do you do a healthy communication? Like all of this stuff is just kind of not in the in the vocabulary of, of what we teach kids um, so it, I think that all of those are areas for for prevention um, and, and hopefully we'll start to move in that direction thanks Paul some uh, fantastic suggestions there um, and uh, you touched on people well two things I want to bring back um, understanding yourself and having the, the lexicon almost to to navigate feelings um, for yourself and also in relationships exactly as you say this is not taught i don't know if it can be taught um, in the uk uh, there is a resilience program amongst school children um, that um, started a few years ago but i guess 
you know, we need to start early. We need to build that into the uh, the normal day-to-day um, -day, uh, language and, and that we use and, and way that we communicate with each other. And I think, I suspect, this is worse for boys and and men than it is for for females. So maybe that leads us to you, Ben, to carry on. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. And, and I, just to expand a little bit on what Paul said there, which I think was so beautiful and so powerful, uh, we don't know how to support each other and we're going to have to learn that right now. Um, one phrase I can't stand is this positive vibes only. And I think it's incredibly damaging for so many. It's simply not possible to live in a world of positive vibes only. There are always things, as we're seeing right now in the grand scheme of things with COVID, there's things outside of our control that will happen in our lives all the time that we can't control that will mean we don't have a great day. But as particularly as men, as you've just raised, um, if, if, if one of us says, how are you doing? And, and the other one replies, well, do you know what? I'm having a bad day. The majority of men will run for the clouds. We're off. We don't know how to, to, to fix that, that problem, that solution. And it's uncomfortable for us. And we can't hold space and we can't hear them and it makes it even worse for them. They've just said, I've had a bad day and now they've made it awkward and now their day is getting even worse. Now we're just coming out of a very difficult situation, very challenging as we've already touched on in a huge number of areas in all sorts of different ways. We have to learn just for it to be okay, not to be okay, for it to be a bad time right now. And not, not that that defines us, not that that makes us a sad person or a depressed person or that we've got mental health problems but that we're a human being who's having a, a, a real life experience and that it's difficult at times it's hard so um yes we i'm really um alive to this concept at the moment of practicing holding space for one another allowing each other to feel emotions allowing the people around us to have a bad day and to just listen to them just to hear them allow them to feel seen how many of us realise that when we, when we talk about something, how much easier it gets? But particularly us men, we, 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 don't, we don't provide the space for someone to actually talk about it. So everyone, we keep it bottled up, bottled up, and we don't want to be the Debbie Downer, is the phrase that comes to, to, to mind. No, none of us want to bring the negative energy. And I'd really like to see a change in this perception where it's just spoken about that, yes, it's okay to, to, to have a bad day, not to be a victim of it, not to be, my world is crumbling, I need you to save me, but just to be okay that right now it's challenging and, and, and that's where I'm at and that's a normal conversation and it's a, not a good conversation or a bad conversation, it's a truthful conversation, it's the reality of the environment that we're in right now and can we just talk about it and can you just see me and hold space for me and maybe you feel the same and maybe you want to talk to me about it too we can find comfort and connection in that space but i'd love to see that just just as human beings just allowing each other to be more and not need to perform and not need to be positive vibes only or anything else but just allow ourselves to be um so that's a huge one for me right now that does tie into this whole sense of connection as well that we touched on for me connection is such a powerful tool for our mental health when we feel connected to people it lifts our spirits, it allows us to feel that beautiful energy inside of us that we, we feel seen and heard. But that comes through truthful, honest conversation, you know, really feeling seen by some, someone, sharing how we really feel, what's really going on. 
And I'm not talking at the level we walk on to the bus and the bus driver says, how are you? And you say, well, hang on a minute, give me five minutes and I'll tell you what's going on in my life. But choosing the, the, the few select people that matter to us, that we can sit in those spaces and trust one another and building on those relationships, the people around us. So, yeah, we need each other right now as human beings. We need to be there for one another. So really sinking into that space, finding compassion for the people around you, giving them space, listening. Um, so, yes, thank you. I just wanted to, to add one little thing. I love what Ben is saying. And sometimes we make this distinction in, in a certain school of therapy of the difference between um, contact and connection. Almost think of like two hands, like just barely touching each other versus like actually, you know, intertwining fingers. We're so, we're not bad at contacting each other, but we're not very good at actually finding a way to connect as people. I think that it's very true for men, but I think it goes, um, it goes across like America in, the U.S. we have this kind of rugged individualism um, ideal that you know is so unhealthy that um, it would be a great thing for us to be able to to really develop a, a program for and being able to help at, at a young age, but any age really. Um, thank you both. Um, some fantastic points there, and um, so I have uh, to. Uh, teenage boys and um, uh, maybe I don't know 10 years ago uh, there was a cartoon there was a movie uh, called I think it was called Inside Out and it was the first time I saw depression and anxiety actually portrayed in a children's uh, character and I love that movie for making this a normal trait that ch even children have uh, to not be upbeat all the time for it to be okay uh, to have low moods and uh, maybe even have clinical depression and for that to all be part of normal. And I know, Paul, you do some work uh, with TV, is that right? So what is the role of, of, of TV and, and that type of messaging in, in making this part of the normal communication that we have with each other? Um, yeah, I'm, so I have a lot of hats and a lot of interests. So I'm, I'm also a, a writer for TV. So I write for, um, have been writing for a TV show on um, NBC here in the U.S. called Chicago Med. Um, and but, um, work, uh, writing other stories as well. And I think that it's a complex question, but basically we, um, TV, film are incredible influences on culture and what is quote-unquote normal, what we can expect in terms of role models and relationships. Um, and so I think there, there's a, first off, an aspect of kind of modeling, modeling of communication, modeling of behaviors, modeling of relationships that comes out of it. And, and I think um, there's been a huge sort of, re I don't want to call it a renaissance, I almost did, but sort of a shift um, in narrative storytelling where people are telling stories about mental health issues, about depression, about anxiety, um, and, and really doing it in a, in a sensitive and more realistic way where it's not done as sort of a spectacle or an othering, um, but really trying to look at the complexities of human experience and that this is being part of it. Um, typically, it, was, it would be done, you know, if we were looking 30 years ago, a story would be told and it would be sort of a, a, um, a character of the week who would come in with a problem and then the lead would sort of solve it. And now we're seeing a huge shift in storytelling where people, where the main characters are really struggling with, with these things. And 
I think that really humanizes it and it opens up conversations and um, it, it gives um, an avenue um, for people who don't have direct experiences themselves to start to be able to explore others because it's all um, the nature of storytelling. I think it's vicarious experience in that way. So, um, I'm always amazed by the guests that come on to this show, <laughs> how multi-talented they are. Um, Sophie, I'm sure you have many thoughts on, on um, how we can avert some of this crisis. Um, well, I think to, to a large extent, some of the damage is done, but that doesn't in terms of kind of the situation we're in now, but there's definitely a lot that people can do to make themselves feel better. Um, I think the one that everybody always mentioned so I won't go into too much detail there's just the role of exercise and uh, for mental health and I think that's been something that's helped me a hell of a lot over the last 12 months um I was somebody who always used to love going to the gym and getting out and that's been a big part of my life that's been shut off so I've been having to be quite disciplined with myself to get out running and I think that's it's helped in many ways and not only is the physical physiological effect uh, really positive but also it's just the adding in a routine to the day seeing other people getting outside in the sunshine just breaking up the monotony so I think that's probably something that I think is one of the best things that everybody could be doing right now I think the other thing that I've been working with a lot myself over the last 12 months or so is just trying to learn how to sit with the discomfort and take a kind of mindfulness style approach to it. I'm somebody who's generally quite impulsive and I would always, when I wasn't feeling good, get up and go out and entertain myself and try and go and have fun and that's been cut off a lot. So I've been really having to train myself to be able to um, sit with a lot of negative emotions that have come up when I'm bored or lonely or stressed and really tune into those and try to remember that um, they're all impermanent so if you sit with them for long enough they will eventually go which is not always possible for a lot of people when you're feeling very very strong uh, surge of negative emotion but um, I found over the course of the 12 months I've definitely got a lot better at it and that I feel is a skill that um, I think will help me in later life so in a way I'm I'm pleased I've had the opportunity to cultivate that. I would have preferred not to have to do it. <laughs> but I think just remembering that um, emotions by their very nature are impermanent. They're states that kind of come in and out. And if you leave them for long enough, they will flow and pass through. Um, I think that's been really useful anyway for me to keep it front of mind. Thank you, Sophie. And, and you know, I like that we're all sharing our personal stories as well, because I, I do think, that's part of the, the solution for people to not pretend to be okay when when they're not um, and to be to feel free to express um, those feelings without the stigma being there. Um, so I will start asking people up for questions, but Paul, I did want to touch on um, or ask you to talk a little bit about uh, the mental health tech work that you do. And Ben and Sophie, if you have any other comments as well, please feel free to add those and I'll start bringing people up. Sure. Thanks. Um, you know, we, we have a, a, a tech startup that um, I started with a, uh, a, someone that I met at a conference who had lost a friend to suicide and he came from a different industry. And I think, you know, 
we, we Kilder, you and I um, message back and forth about talking about tech in general and what it's really offering nowadays. And I, I really want to make sure we touch on that because I think it is terrific that it's increasing access. People are able to find um, therapists or therapeutic resources, you know, mindfulness meditation. Um, and, and it's terrific in terms of that. And that's what our app started as as well, was just a matching someone to a therapist and being able to do it. And what we're working on now is um, kind of the next steps beyond that. So how can you do sort of a, um, not diagnostic intake, but something like that through um, standardized psychometrics, identifying um, where every person is on the mental health spectrum, their particular needs, and then matching them to the best evidence-based resources for that, subclinical and clinical. So rather than just saying everyone should do mindfulness, there's certain personality subtypes that have been shown to benefit actually from mindfulness in particular. So let's not use the same thing for everybody and let's identify what their unique needs are. Um, and then, you know, including also the sort of psychoeducation, we call a mental health fluency course for everybody. Um, and then we have other things as well, but really trying to, to give resources for everybody along the spectrum. Um, we have a free online community forum where people can connect with each other. That's intended to be sort of a safe space. Um, trying to sort of solve the fractured nature or the fragmented nature of the system, as well as adding in all the preventative pieces and, and helping people to navigate um, in a more um, user-friendly way. So that, that's that's some of the things that we're working on. We're, we're targeting college students and um, starting to move into other areas like government right now. Um, so, yeah. It's called Udify. It comes from the Hindi word Ut, uh, which means lift up. And the idea is a, an app and a community to lift each other up. So that's what we're working on. Um, and there's a lot of great players in the space that are working on the, the crisis from different angles. I know you mentioned um, that you had ones that you had on before. Mindstrong is working on serious mental illness. Um, there's a lot of apps that are just working on sort of telemental health and, and just connecting people with therapists. And I think it's it's all important. Um, we're all we're all doing what we can to help move the needle. So that's that's me and, and our, our app. Thanks for asking. Great, Paul. And if it's available for people, I will share the link to that um, after, maybe tomorrow. So if you could send that to me, if it's shareable. Yeah. Yeah, there's a public forum. The other one is is a subscription service that we're offering to enterprises. So that's um, a separate conversation. But people can feel free to DM me if they want to talk about it or hear more. Thank you. Okay, great. So um, let's start with the questions. Um, and again, reminder, we can't answer personal uh, mental health problems. So please keep the questions general. So Precious, nice to meet you. Thanks for coming up. Hi, um, thanks for um, allowing me up. Um, I don't have a I don't have a, a question to be honest. I saw the um, the title and because it says solving mental health crisis, I thought I'd listen in and see what I can add. So I, I don't have a specific question because I'm actually trying to educate people to come away from tagging uh, human behavior as a uh, and trying to define it as a mental health rather than just actual reaction to a specific situation so 
Um, so, in other words, I don't have a question. I'm, I'm more of here to sort of add uh, to what the title says um, and sort of try to help people dissolve the, the crisis in terms of mental health and how people might see things. So, um, I think that's what I would like to say for now, to be honest. Thank you. Thank you, Precious. If, would anyone like to respond from the panel? Yeah, I'll give a little bit if that's okay. Um, I think, Precious, your point is well taken, where we, you know, traditionally there has been a lot of stigma going into kind of diagnosing a mental health condition, what was called mental disorders or mental illnesses for a long time. And I think the field has really been working to shift beyond that, going from what we call sort of a categorical diagnosis, either you have it or you don't, to a spectrum or a dimensionalization. So the idea that everybody exists somewhere on that spectrum, and we call it a, a disorder or, or whatever we want to name it when it is sort of functionally impairing, where it gets in the way of someone's functioning. They're not able to hold their job, they're, um, they're getting suicidal, they're having problems in their relationship because of it. That's sort of when we start to market as something that, that needs an intervention, even though very often it is within the spectrum of human experience, to your point. But I think that, that um, my only concern, if we, if, that there is, a, there is an extreme in the other direction, that if we normalize things too much, then sometimes we, we miss out on um, needs to intervene with some people. Or, you know, they, they say like, oh, well, I'm crashingly depressed and suicidal, but everybody gets a little sad, so don't worry about it. And it, I'm not saying that that's what you're saying, but that some people do take that sort of tack and it, and it um, minimizes the suffering that some people are going through. So it's Paul. Okay, uh, thank you, Precious. So let's move on to David. David, welcome to the room and welcome to Clubhouse. It seems that you're new. David, if you're there, you need to unmute. Um, thank you very much. I am new today. And thank you also. The whole panel is adding wonderful material to the conversation. I'm David Pesnick, and I practice psychotherapy in New York City, and I'm also the in-house shrink at Google New York, so I work with a lot of young people as well. So we're talking a lot about how it affects people in resilience, in the threat that holds us together, in the isolation, and how men, particularly, but women have similar issues about exposing themselves. Any problem can look like a weakness, which becomes, as, as you all have said already, a block to sharing. So one of the threads for me in all of these parts are acceptance, not normalizing the mental health per se, but accepting each other, accepting each other's pain, each other's sadness, each other's joy, and also accepting our own pain and sadness and joy and confusion. This has been such a confusing time. One of the things that makes us human, I always felt, is the ability and the need to connect with others. The individual a million years ago who didn't have that need to connect, he's out of the gene pool. He's gone. The ones who survived all need and want and 
long for connection. And the COVID experience, by definition again, holds us apart from one another in isolation, where then we could have every feeling that was already discussed, like guilt, uh, survivor's guilt, guilt about what, how we may have given a you know, virus to someone else. So how do we reach back to acceptance of ourselves and acceptance of one another? So there is no resolve, per se, again, for the mental health crisis. That's an ongoing thing that always will come in with every tide. But how does each person take responsibility for themselves and the ones around them to love, empathize, and accept one another to join as a larger, sensitive, and loving unit? Thank you, David. Um, some, you make some good points. Um, I certainly don't know the answer. I don't know if Ben or Sophie have thoughts on that. Or Paul. I think there's, I think David makes great points and I'm sure we could go back and forth about this. There's, there's the nature of sort of acceptance of each other and there's also the nature of acceptance of ourselves. Sometimes I talk about it with patients as sort of a secondary emotions, like you're feeling bad and then you're feeling bad that you feel bad. That's, it's like you're layering on something on top of it. And if you can, if you can accept that you, that it's okay to feel bad, then you're at least not feeding the cycle and, and not making self-perpetuating sort of thing. But I think that the that to David's point, if I'm, I don't want to speak for him, but that there's you know the nature of the isolation that we're feeling um, means that we're we're in our bubbles and we can't necessarily connect with each other and we can't necessarily support each other. And we don't know how to hold or help process all the feelings that come up. Sometimes I, I think about this or discuss it as like feelings and experiences will life will affect you. And you have feelings that come up that are like like food, like they have to be digested, they have to be chewed up in some way, um, or sometimes vomited out. And um, life is about understanding and finding ways to be. This is opening some thread of finding ways of digesting those emotions and processing them to be able to move on. And we sometimes use our friends for that, but when we don't have our friends, we need tools to be able to do that on our own. And, and I don't know that we're super great at that either. Yeah, just so I just just add to that really. I think it's it's so important right now. You know, this this level of acceptance, acceptance of so, so many areas, acceptance of so many things outside of our control, acceptance of our emotions, acceptance, acceptance that there are challenges out there and acceptance that it's okay to have challenges. It kind of goes back to what I was saying before about this positive vibes only. You know, it's not realistic. It's, it's not realistic to live that way. Um, acceptance that the real world will present problems and challenges and acceptance that emotions will come with that that aren't necessarily the most fun. They're not necessarily the emotions that we choose to have every day. But is it perhaps the emotion themselves or is it our reaction to the emotion that's the biggest problem? And if we can accept the emotion as a challenging one that fits the environment, actually, that it is a difficult situation right now, then we allow it to pass, we allow it to move to move, move through us without so much impact. As opposed to, well, along the lines of what Paul was saying as well in terms of we're not creating a negative loop from there and beating ourselves up. Oh, I'm feeling bad and everyone's going to think I'm bad because I'm bringing this vibe and I should be happy now because we're just allowed out of this. Da -da -da. 
And now we're just creating more, you know, we're taking ourselves farther into a negative loop. Can we be okay with the fact that it's, it's not easy, that it's a difficult, challenging time, and there are challenging emotions with it? Can we accept that, not let them define us, but be accepting and move forward? So, yeah, it's, it's beautifully expressed and really important, I believe, too. Thanks both. Thank you, David. Um, so we move on to Alex. Um, I just want to check one second, Alex. Um, Paul, Ben, Sophie, uh, we're coming up to the hour. Are you um, okay to carry on for another 15, 20 minutes? All good. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I'm good, thank yeah. you. Okay, thanks. Alex? Nice to meet you. Um, um, hello, it's a pleasure to meet everyone. Thank you so much for allowing me the opportunity to come on the stage and, and say hello and talk. Um, my name's Alex, I'm from London. Um, I think the talk is fantastic. I think it's a great subject. Um, I want to mention just a couple of bits. I'm, I'm, I'm not in the industry at all. I teach web design, internet marketing, but I do do a lot of consultants in a lot of, you, you know, when you're doing a website for someone, you are also having all their business in their life. So I do get involved with that a little bit. Um, and I just want to mention a couple of things that I thought would be quite interesting. I've lived with my mother and my sister, and both of them are bipolar. So I've dealt through years of ups and downs with bipolar, um, and it's it's when it comes to mental health, it is a big deal. When they're down, I mean you can't do anything, you know. And then when they're up, they're all over the place. So I've had years of dealing with it. What I'm impressed with in today's world, which was touched on with In and Out, um, is the fact that I do think mental health is actually more in television now. And also, I think BoJack Horseman. Has anyone here seen BoJack Horseman? Um, Bojack Horseman, just for anyone that doesn't see it, that's entirely about mental health. Although it's a comedy about actors and stuff, actually, if anyone's actually seen it, it, it it's a great thing and it's about mental health. Great and show. the last thing I've... It's a great show, isn't it? Yeah. And, they, and I, I, everyone should watch it if they're into mental health. I think it's a great thing they put on. And the last thing I wanted to say is, I want to actually just talk about Clubhouse. Because I think in this world of separation in this world that we're no longer here i am on stage with x amount of people and we're all talking together and i think clubhouse um has actually brought back what it actually means to actually be sociable and we've lost a world of sociability with fake instagram posts and a fake life that everyone's trying to get to i've seen girls walking around london and they're like they've got fake lips everything about them is entirely fake you know, and what I love about Clubhouse is, it's only about our personality. So I think Clubhouse, in a sense, I think in right now, I think is actually happening with mental health. I think personally, um, I'm gonna. My name's Alex. Thank you very, very much for allowing me to say a few points, um, and I'm gonna say goodbye. Thank you very much. Thank you, Alex. Some very good points, and I have to agree with you. I think Clubhouse is far more authentic it's live it's very difficult to pretend you know something if you don't actually know something um so and and it's um surprising but very refreshing that it's audio only and uh, does not rely on looking a certain way so um i'm very glad that clubhouse has been around during lockdown um so any of the panelists want to respond to alex's comments we don't need to i think there were more comments and, and questions and I will certainly check out Bojack Horseman. I've seen images or memes of <laughs> it's a horse, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's a horse, but it's um, 
as I say, Bojack Horseman, it's all about effectively like the Cosby Show. Hate the Cosby Show. Um, so the horse plays the head of the Cosby Show, for example, but it's 20 years afterwards and it's a complete dropout. So it's kind of like a, it's, a, it's a comedy of um, Hollywood and the whole world of it, but it actually massively is about mental health as well. So, I, I yeah, it's definitely worth watching it. Because I see Paul says he's seen it as well, haven't you, Paul? Yeah, I think it's a terrific show and definitely really moved the, the needle in terms of being able to present this. And I think one of the tools that they used was was really giving his inner monologue in terms of what he's wrestling with and, and what he says to himself and, and really gives language to the, the thoughts, the self-deprecating, self-questioning, anxious thoughts that, that many people struggle with. Um, but, you know, it's, it's with, within the framework of sort of a, a washed-out Hollywood star, which then brings in all of the aspects of um, the the fantasy that we chase in terms of fame and glory and, and how that doesn't end up actually mapping out to true fulfillment. And so um, it's, a, it's, it's a brilliant show in terms of um, what they really do with it. And it's about a horse. <laughs> we'll definitely check it out. Okay, thank you, Alex, so much. Nice to meet you. Um, next we have Charlene. Hi, everybody. Um, thank you for this really excellent, beautiful conversation. I think it's so timely, it's so pressing, um, and it's been really wonderful to hear all of the excellent points uh, that everyone's brought up. I have a, a few, a couple things to say, and, and I'll, I'll end with a question. Um, I'm a hospital physician out of Northwell Health in New York, and um, as you can imagine, uh, New York City being you know, one of the initial epicenters of COVID uh, was incredibly, incredibly difficult. Um, and to say mental health um, really came to the forefront, not only for our patients, but for ourselves is, is certainly, you know, an understatement. And, um, and I think this conversation is really important uh, for, for all those reasons. Uh, a lot of really excellent points were brought up. And I, I might just add um, that one thing I found really helpful um, was to utilize my current platform as a hospital physician um, to be a mental health ally. And um, shifting my conversations within the hospital to include mental health such that it wasn't just, you know, the psychiatrist's or the psychologist's role to handle mental health. We were all really in it together. And it, it just made me realize that we all on some level have a platform of some sort to be mental health allies. And I think really just together in that way, um, we'll be able to systematically destigmatize it and make it more and more a part of normal everyday conversation. Not something that we're trying to, you know, enforce upon somebody, but also not something that, you know, we're ashamed to talk about. Um, and, and so that was what one thing that I found to be very helpful for me. Um, another thing that I found helpful um, was really just the, the notion of gratitude, um, not trying to take your day and turn it into a, a, a good vibes only kind of story like Ben mentioned, um, but including within your attention spotlight uh, the positives that do exist, the things that we do have. And I created a small group chat with a few friends and we had a nightly check-in about something that we were grateful for. And what that did was it really over time shifted 
uh, and expanded the attention to, to really allow for an, a more inclusive and complete picture of, of how things are and really creating that habit I found to be really impactful not only for myself but friends and then including family and, and colleagues amongst that um, you know it, it really shifts mood uh, over time um, and so I found that to be really helpful as well uh, the one question that I that I would have actually is for for Ben um, but certainly anybody else that has uh, insight I would love to hear I have come to find in my own life, um, you know, coming across people that are still, uh, for lack of a better term, maybe trapped in the masculinity um, role playing. Um, how how might somebody go about um, kind of uh, bringing to light? some insight in another person that that's what's going on. Um, how might we, um, you know, approach, reach out to and connect with uh, those people um, that might still be operating from a, a place of fear based masculinity, a need to really wear that mask. Um, and and um, how might we start to dismantle that toxicity? Thanks, Shalin. Uh, uh, ben, uh, I think that was for you. Question. Yeah, thank you, thank you. And it's it's it's, a, it's a, such a prevalent question, and probably one I get asked most by men and women. Um, it's so difficult. You can't change someone who doesn't want to change. Um, what we can do is we can embody um, an openness ourselves. We can embody uh, a vulnerability, a willingness to share, and open ourselves up and let ourselves be seen. That can provide space for them to see that it's okay, that it's possible. Uh, whenever someone asks me how I'm doing, I always try and give them a real answer. I ask, I say to them, "What really?" Or, or do you, "Should I just tell you I'm fine?" You know, and they'll go, "No, really." And then in that space, I can say, "Well, listen, this is this is how I'm feeling right now," and then put it back to them, "How are you? How are you getting on?" And they have space now. Um, it's so difficult with men because I, I find sometimes it can almost be a, a patronizing question if you say to someone, no, but listen, really, like, tell me how you're really doing. Because someone who's a pain, who doesn't, who doesn't, uh, who's protective and defensive in, in that situation, the, the last thing they want to be doing is be put on the spot and, and, and be almost be forced into position. It's they're only likely to get more defensive. So for me, it's, it's just representing and embodying the energy of allowing them to be all of who they can be and giving them space um, generally, not forcing it upon them, but just allowing them to, to then take the, make the choice themselves. Um, show them that they, you're not there to judge, you know, that, that, that you're not perfect, we're not perfect, nobody is, and we've all got flaws, we've all got challenges, and I'd love to talk to you about anything that's in your space, because that's real life, and just really allowing that space. Um, I'm also conscious that, like, when it comes to, um, to to actually sort of doing the work, you know, if there's deeper work to be done, you know, we, we, we need to, at a, at a society level, we need to change this perspective that it's weak to have problems, it's weak to, to be working with someone, it's weak to see a therapist, and actually see it as progressive, you know, that, that, it's, that it's healthy to be talking to someone, it's healthy to be growing, it's healthy to be learning from someone who knows about things that you don't. Um, 
So at, a, at that level, I would love to see more of that happening. But as a, as a, at a friendship level, I think, as I say, all we can really do is embody the openness and willingness to share our own challenges, to give them the ability to do that the same. I wish I had a, a more conclusive and, and, a, and a more powerful answer, if you like, but it's um, you can't change someone who doesn't want to change, sadly. Um, so uh, as a follow-up, Paul, um, there seems to me quite a big difference uh, uh, across the Atlantic, so between the UK and, and the US in terms of willingness to see a therapist, seek help, seems to be far more normalised in the US than in the UK. Is that your... Um, uh, is that what you've seen as well? I mean, I think in, in um, metropolitan areas, absolutely. But I think that there's, and I think that the U.S. has is quite large and quite heterogeneous. That that it's it's hard to generalize from that to to any to the country as a whole. So I think that there's plenty of aspects of the country, and even subcultures within cities, where it's not um, it's not acceptable. But I would say the numbers are absolutely rising. Most definitely, the need is growing um, everywhere. There's um. There was a study in The Lancet um, early on in COVID um, where they looked at prior sort of pandemics and quarantines, and they found that there was essentially, I think, like a four times increase in, in mental health complaints in, in terms of prevalence. Um, so I think that, that the needs are only going to grow, and I think that there is definitely a, a, a slow and steady cultural shift in, um, in the U.S. in terms of people understanding and accepting that, that therapy and mental health services are useful. Is that a four times increase during lockdown or during this last year? During lockdown. Yeah. It, it was referencing prior pandemics, not from COVID yet. It was predicting that, that we could expect something similar from COVID. Yeah, and I guess that's on the back of an opioid epidemic as a, a baseline. So quite worrying. Okay, yeah. thank you. Thank you. We're going to move on. Thanks, Shailen, for your question. Uh, to, is it Damon? Yes, it's Damon. Thank you. How uh, I appreciate it. Uh, first and foremost, Just, tonight, Lana, want, um, sorry, um, we don't have very long. We, I think we can only stretch for another 10 minutes. So if I could ask the remaining people uh, on stage to just ask a brief question. Thank you. Sorry to interrupt. Oh, yeah. Go ahead, Damon. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, I just wanted to add in. Uh, I appreciate the conversation and the dialogue. And uh, coming from, you know, I, I grew up in a small community in very rural Alaska, and I've had an opportunity to engage with trauma and being trauma-informed over the last 12 years. It started in basketball camps, and it led to facilitating in schools, and it led to contracting with health organizations. And uh, I've been having a lot of conversations around mental health and trauma and acknowledging that there are intersections to this healing, and there are intersections to these conversations because, you know, the uh, indigenous communities and the black community and people of color, those, you know, those communities have suffered from mental health struggles for a very long time, which is trauma. And uh, I'm curious to know, and what we're, what we're setting up actually right now, and I'm going to ask this question, what we're setting up right now in my hometown of Heidelberg, Hiktahundlai, the southern tip of southeast Alaska, we're setting up a trauma-informed training so that we could start um, having folks in our school understand these these dynamics and how to better serve folks who have experienced trauma. And that's what I started doing is working with educators on how to engage with youth have experienced trauma. So my question is, how 
are there programming, is there programs out there that you have seen that are eliminating the gatekeeping, gatekeeping, if that makes sense? Because, you know, as you know, you have to be qualified to host a lot of these different programs. But from what I've seen from a grassroots level, I've seen a lot of the best healers are folks, folks who have experienced trauma and who are able to really connect to community. So I'm curious if you know of programs, if you know of uh, if you think that mental health is going that direction of informing um, the communities from a, like a community and foundational level, if you if you see those things happening. So I appreciate the time. It's a very important question, Damon, particularly amongst um, uh, you know ethnic uh, groups and, and small groups. Um, Paul, you may be the best place to answer that, or Sophie. Yeah, places where I've seen this uh, being implemented so far in the UK anyway is in schools where they're offering as Kotha mentioned things like res uh, Penn Resilience Programme which is a training programme to help um, school younger children in how to be more resilient against stress and kind of bounce back from it. I've also seen programmes where they um, take into giving uh, baseline training in mental health to people who have in quite a lot of interaction with the public and where I've seen this is in for example personal trainers or other kind of affiliated um, health professions and I just in very interestingly as an anecdote I took a taxi a couple of months back um, back home I had quite a long taxi ride and I got a long chat with my taxi driver who himself was a trained a therapist and was thinking about offering uh, taxi therapy <laughs> which I'd never seen before but that was quite a nice idea so potentially maybe that's the, the scope in the future. I love the thought of that an Uber driver that gives you therapy on the way home and uh, I think there are many examples of, of hairdressers and, and people who we normally interact with giving public health interventions for example in um, Africa giving uh, advice on contraception and STDs. So good work. <laughs> Anyone else want to come in, Paul? Um, yeah, I think there's, a, just to add to um, what Sophie was saying, I think that there has been very interesting community work in India in terms of training um, you know, local um, non-educated people uh, in terms of mental health to be essential basic support for one another. I think there's other work that's been done in terms of schools, like high schools, where they identified um, sort of core um, uh, kind of like central people in terms of social networks, so people that other people identified as being trustworthy. What they did was um, there was a study where they did um, essentially had everyone do an anonymous reporting of the top people that they trusted within the school. And then they identified who did mo the most people identify as trustworthy. And then they took those individuals who were most identified by others and taught them basic mental health support skills. So I think that's sort of a, a way of kind of buttressing the, the support network. Um, and I think that there's basic peer support skills that everybody really should, should and can know in terms of how to support another person's, you know, emotions as they're going through them. Um, basic peer support counseling skills. I mean, I learned that when I was in college and, and that led me down this road. But I think that, Damon, the, the, the little piece that you just want to make sure if you're building a program for this is knowing when something is a little bit above the, the abilities of your program. So when 
um, they need what we call a higher level of care. So when they do need to see a professional, because I think that for a very large number of people, having a peer support network with people that can teach resiliency skills do very simple peer counseling is a lot, all right, just with that alone. But there will be people where that's insufficient and they need to know when they need to refer out. So I'm just that. Great. Thank you, Damon. And uh, if you have follow-up, um, please look at the bios and, and reach out um, through that means. Thank you for coming up. Okay, next, um, Vino Adaram. Apologies for my Hi. pronunciation. It's okay. Hi, Professor. Um, uh, thank you for setting up the space. I really appreciate learning from Paul, Ben, and Sophie. Um, because to respect time, my question is going to be as brief as possible. Um, I know we're aware of the benefits of Clubhouse and, you know, I, I'm a social psychology PhD student and my dissertation is actually about social media and well-being. And as you can all attest, right, one of the, there's been a lot of work that shows like one of the things that shows social media being bad is when we consume it passively. So going back to Instagram, when you are just scrolling things mindlessly, and this applies to a lot of social media networking platforms. Um, but then like something like Clubhouse is very nice because it's active. Um, like right now, everyone in this room, including the moderators that I look up to right now, you can hear my voice. I feel seen, I feel heard, that's great. But at the same time with that comes the caveat, which leads to my question. I do feel like uh, this tailors a little bit to Paul's response to Damon's question. Uh, a lot of people with good intentions are trying to help other people. But my question is, you know, as someone who is a researcher, um, like, I, I feel very nervous sometimes and I don't want to be the policeman of the world because sometimes I go into rooms and people are spreading inaccurate information, potentially harmful information. And going back to Paul, what you mentioned earlier, right? Um, one type of treatment might not work for different people. Uh, telling someone to reappraise their emotions might not work for a marginalized population that perceives they're being oppressed or discriminated. Like, literally, there's work to show that when you perceive you're being oppressed, your frontal lobe struggles to process information so i can't tell a black or brown person who's being discriminated to be like hey try to think positively it might be very difficult under that stress position so my advice is what do you think is the most impactful thing we can do to prevent misinformation and you know including those who are unintentionally harmful this is the note i'm done speaking thank you everyone thank you go ahead Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Vinod, um, for your question. Uh, Stephen, you next. Hi. Um, 
conceptualizes problem and mental health. Of course, it's not simple. There's many reasons as to why people have mental health issues, and it's very sorry. There's lots of different methods that can be effective for people. Um, but for those, for the epidemic of mental health issues I'm seeing, I see it as an issue. And I mean, I don't think we really understand what humans need. Or more to the point, even if we do know intuitively or intellectually what humans need, I don't think social systems are calibrated to addressing our human needs as they are much more to our immediate wants. And I think far too often people pick a want that they convince themselves will meet a need. And, um, in myself, I'm actually really, I'm exploring this. Uh, I'm, I've been writing for the last two years um, a book. I'm not going to try and plug my work. I'm simply, I'm, I'm just genuinely trying to understand it. I'm trying to understand how can people be happy, fulfilled, and capable. And um, I just keep coming back to this simple point of human needs. We need to have a real fundamental conversation. Sorry, a very open conversation of the fundamental needs of human beings and we have to kind of ask from once we've color from once we've created a list a criteria of what people need then we have to ask the question does the world meet those needs and if not and if it's not going to change anytime soon how can individuals um have a better understanding of what they need and, and try to create daily habits and uh daily systems that take the cognitive load off of them to be expected to try to address their needs on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, I think there's far too, to tell people, we're living in a, we're living in a world, sorry, where self-development, um, self-reflection, self, it's all about the individual. Um, but that contradicts one of the fundamental needs of the human being, which is about being connected. Um, that I don't want to go too much on. I, I really what I want to know is what are your thoughts on what humans need? What do you think humans need? And do you think the current world meets those needs? Thank you very much. Thank you, Stephen. Um, no, you raise a very good point. And uh, Paul touched earlier on um, people not really understanding themselves. And I, I, from what I see this year, all of our worlds have been turned upside down. And we've realized that the things that we thought brought us security and happiness and fulfillment actually did not in times of, of need. And um, what we really need, the, the, the way our lives are set up, which is very individualistic, very hedonistic, and that social capital that we discussed earlier, I think that's been slowly eroded over the last few decades. And we no longer live in a society that is... Uh, conducive to that social capital being the norm. For example, being a member of a church that brings, that means that once or twice a week you have the same group that you meet up with that brings you some form of, of purpose and uh, support in, directly or indirectly. Uh, we talk about um, youth clubs that used to um, be there when I, certainly when I was growing up, and um, they're no longer there. Libraries. So these community hubs, 
that we've used um, in lieu of other forms of social capital are no longer there and we're, we're doing away with them. So I, I do I do think we need to look at some of those. So good luck with your book, Stephen. I'm going to ask if anyone Thank in the you. panel wants to comment on that. Um, I'd love to share it through because I'm, I'm, I'm fully on board. It's, it's a massive thing for me and it's, it's how I have so much compassion for people because I do fundamentally think society points us in the wrong direction to, to, to for a fulfilling life. Um, from as long as I can remember, I was taught that a successful life was to, to work hard, get a degree, get a good job, a wife, kids, buy the house, get the car, and bingo. It would all be sorted. And it's no coincidence for me that, that the suicide rates were at the highest for men in the, in the early 40s when perhaps they've achieved so much of what they ever thought they needed. And yet, there's emptiness within. Yes. Um, Sorry. They achieved what they thought they needed, but they didn't achieve what they really needed. Um, I'm just going to leave it because I know you guys want to give you a piece. Uh, would it be okay if I message one or two of you to potentially ask for an interview or something? If that'd be all right, I'll 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 get into your DM, DMs, sorry. But if I keep your time. Um, yes, Stephen, I'm happy for you to message me and then I can maybe divert it to one of the other panellists depending on what the question is. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, Brody, the last question, and I've had a quick look at your bio and I saw the word addiction in there. So I have a question for you, actually. <laughs> um, we, as a doctor, I've seen, as a public health doctor, I've seen that addictions, particularly alcohol, have gone through the roof. And I do think there's going to be, um, over the next few years, a lot of uh, fallout as a result. Um, so your thoughts on that, and, and if you have a question for the panel, please go ahead. Sure, thank you so much for the question, and thanks for putting this on. Um, necessary topic. I used to struggle with addiction very badly myself, and it came, I came to the conclusion that when I was in treatment, there was so much toxic masculinity and addictions would just go from you'd stop using drugs and alcohol, but then your next addiction would be cars or, you know, proving your manhood in front of everybody. So I think that addiction, we're all addicts in some way, shape or form. And this pandemic has just exacerbated that. Um, really, my main question was when it comes to narcissism um i it's very difficult for me to be compassionate to somebody who's mean to me but i feel that if i understood them more then i could have more compassion for them and i just was curious if anybody on this panel understood narcissism and um if that's a mental health disorder or not thank you for this so much Thank you, Brody. Um, Paul, do you know about narcissism as a personality disorder? Yeah, I mean, I guess, Brody, what I would say is that generally everyone has narcissistic traits. We all have a little bit of narcissism in that we have to advocate for ourselves and think about ourselves. And then there's the extreme that Cooper was just mentioning, which is narcissistic personality disorder, which is kind of to the, to the point where you're so narcissistic that some upper level treatment or, um, or privilege that other people don't, <clears throat> you know, the, some 
toxic or malignant narcissist. That was an expression thrown around a lot. So I think that they're that just to understand that there it exists on a spectrum, like everything, um, and that the extreme is um, is definitely a problem that is identified as as a mental illness and something that can benefit from treatment. Though it's very difficult to treat it, they have to have a skilled therapist. They've got the latest medications for it anyway. Yes, it does. Thank you. Thank you, Brody. Um, okay, so we do have to close the room. Um, it's coming up to an hour and a half. Any uh, closing comments from the panel? Or any last thoughts? I'd love to just share that it's, it's, I think it's great these conversations are happening. Um, I'm grateful to be part of it. And just let's keep them happening and um, never, never be afraid to, to express challenges within me. Um, uh, it's a difficult time and it's okay. And, and that's my overriding take from this. Um, it's okay. You know, it's okay to, to, to not be okay. Um, to gather around the people that matter to you and, 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 and that's really allowed for connection to shine through, to be there for one another at, at these times. Thank you, Ben. Uh, Paul? I will echo what Ben said. I, I really appreciate that. I appreciate even the conversations about trying to improve a system that doesn't, as if it's one system, but a system that just doesn't really work that well. And, and I appreciate that we're all um, we're trying to do what we can. So thank you all for, for participating uh, and inviting me to join. Sophie? Just that we're very near the end now, fingers crossed, so hoping everyone can hang on in there um, for another couple of months. We're quite we're near summer anyway in the Northern Hemisphere, so that'll help. And I think one of the, uh, the guys who asked the question earlier made a comment about gratitude and the power of that, and I, I think that was a point we didn't touch on as much as we could have done. Um, and I think that, that that's potentially something for another clubhouse session, but it's a really useful tool to help um, make you feel a bit better is just to reflect on the things that you're grateful for in your life at present. So a shame we didn't get to talk about that, but it's, it's a good technique. Great, thank you. So I guess my closing remarks are that it has been a very difficult year for everyone, and I don't know a single person who hasn't been negatively affected this year. But I do see signs of hope, uh, both on a personal and professional level in terms of, of mental health, be that stigma, awareness, um, tools to actually help people to both recognise, prevent and also treat mental health problems. So I do think, think that we are moving in the right direction. But as some of the conversation has recognised, um, our lives are not necessarily set up to help us um, prevent mental health problems. And I think that's going to be the challenge, how we start living our lives in a way that's more in alignment with um, uh, coping with times of stress. Um, I really want to thank Paul, Ben and Sophie. It has You've all been amazing and added so much value. And actually, I, I feel a lot better after uh, today's session. I feel like I've, I've been in a therapy session. So thank you all for your insights 
and I'd love to repeat this session maybe after a few weeks um, and see how everyone's doing at that point. So thank you everyone. And um, I will be sharing um, the recording from um, uh, today. So if you check on my Twitter for updates and I'll put a link there. And if the panelists want to share any uh, resources or links, then please send them to me. So thank you everyone. Have a nice evening. Oh, nice day, Paul. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.